This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hey everybody, Danielle here. We've been getting some questions about this, so we just wanted to let you know that our bonus episodes now live on the Wondery app, and you can access them by subscribing to Wondery Plus. So again, to access our bonus episodes, you want to subscribe to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app, and you can continue to listen to the rest of our episodes just as you are now on any platform. Um, You can also, if you are inclined, listen to new episodes one week early on Amazon Music or early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. So it's really just a great value. Okay, to the show. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. And I'm a street-walking cheetah with a heart full of napalm, but my parents call me Danielle Henderson. (laughs) They shortened it. Thankfully. I mean, I will call you whatever you want me to call you, obviously. It was was too much to get on the birth certificate. And also, I've never met my dad, so I don't know why I said parents. I thought maybe they were inspired by the Fiona Apple album, Win the Pawn, ah! um, and decided to name their child that. Listen, we, can we somebody bring that please? album up a lot on this podcast. We do, because I think it is embedded in our psyche as one of the most wild things that has <laughs> occurred with language, frankly. With language. <laughs> to name your album a poem was wild. <laughs> and I'm I'm into it, and it just is always in in my head. But I would also love for just one one parent, one set of parents, to just muster up the pure ballsiness to just name your child a poem. Just do it for us. If you're pregnant and listening, name your child a full poem. And just let us know how it goes down at the courthouse. Is that where you file your birth certificate? I don't know how anything works, clearly. (laughs) It's getting wild already out there. I mean, that Grimes baby. Come on. Grimes has a secret baby that we don't even know what that name is yet. Oh, I, I, whoa, this is all news to me. From what I understand, Grimes was being interviewed and the interviewer heard a baby crying upstairs and was like, you got another baby in here? And Grimes was like, yeah. What? 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 Me and Elon Musk had a, had a baby before we broke <gasps> up. So I don't even know what that baby's... That baby's name could be a poem. Wow. Or the news I heard could be fake. One of two things is happening. <laughs> wow. Wow. I did, I did not check for sources on that. I just kind of read that on Twitter and kept it going. <laughs> I was like, I-, I can't today. I can't take any more Grimes baby information in today. Listen, and and here I thought that Pilot Inspector was the craziest baby name I'd ever heard. I know. 
So, I mean, now uh, there was there's some wild ones out there. Yes. I listen. I don't have kids. What? I had a hard I don't have a I had a hard enough time <laughs> naming my dog. Uh, <laughs> how did you name your dog? You know, I actually had a, a list of names of dog names in my phone. Um, and I I had some real high concept ones. I had ones that were very uh, you know, like names of um uh, favorite classic movie actors and actresses. I mean, it was just like really obnoxious. Um, but then when I just lo- I like looked at her and I thought like, what cutesy wootsy name goes with this cutesy wootsy face? And I just decided Aww. Sophie was it. I was like, because it's kind of French. She's a Bichon Frise. It's a French dog. So I was like, keeping the spirit of her breed and that cute face, she'll be a Sophie. What about Karen? What, where was the inspiration for Karen? I'm, I'm curious. Well, first and foremost, I have a friend named Sophie. And one of the first, when we first started hanging out, one of the first things she said to me was, my name, I, I only hear my name with like older women, like women that were born before 1940 or dogs. Like everyone is naming their dogs. <laughs> Those names I feel like are back in the cycle, yes. the baby name cycle. It's like the old lady names are back. Because of dogs. Like you got a dog, you made a dog named Ruby enough times and you're like, that sounds like a good name for this kid I'm about to have. Yeah, I, oh my God, I... I love thinking about baby name um, trends. <laughs> it really does say a lot about our culture. When you look at the baby name trends, you're like, oh, those Gary years were straight boomers. <laughs> like, there's no baby Garys anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, no Garys and no Debras. Am I right? A Deborah? No Deb. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely correct. I-, I can't even remember the last time I met a baby named Danielle. I feel. I feel like... The names that we grew up with in the 80s are not the vibe right now. Maybe they will be in like 10 years. Yeah. Because right now, based on sort of what I've been hearing out in these streets with people's new children, it seems like it's a lot of like 1920s, you know, sort of like American Henrys and... uh. I don't know, like just like these kind of Millies and Henrys and um, Harriet's. Harriet is a name again. If you Um, listen, if you have a baby named Harriet, I want you to write to me immediately. I want to know everything about how that came about. I would love to meet a baby Harriet. Yeah, I I feel like those names are maybe maybe back. Uh, I just I just I feel like the flapper names are back. Uh, in a lot of ways. So who who knows? I think Danielle will come back. Certainly. The Roaring the Roaring 20s are the Roaring 20s. And when we get to the, <laughs> the Disco 70 resurgence, Danielle will probably make a comeback. I feel that's that is the case. But right now it's it's in a dead zone. I am neither dog nor elder. So my name <laughs> right now is just laying real low. Did you ever have a nickname growing up? Or did you call yourself something different? My family nicknames were Danny. Uh-huh. Which I will only allow my family to call me P.S. Sure. There have there have been a couple of people who have tried it in like, you know, writing me emails or especially after they read my book. Yeah. And they're like, oh, Danny. And I'm like, nope, that is a family nickname. And my other family nickname was Moose because my family is cruel and weird. And I was fat. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a lot of roles. 
And they just wanted to make sure that I never forgot that I was fat. Wow. <laughs> Maybe you just stick with Danny. Maybe just stick with that one. Well, yeah. I I could definitely sit in a therapist's office and talk about shitty nicknames people have given me in my childhood, for sure. And to answer your question from way, 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 way back, Carrot is named Carrot... And I feel terrible about this. Every day I look into his little eyes and I feel like I failed him from the day we met. That was his name when I got him. So like his foster parents named him Carrot. And I was like, he seems cool with it. It's cute. I'll keep it. Yeah. And I call him nicknames. I made up a bunch of nicknames for him. Yeah. But his name, there was no thought process whatsoever. And sometimes I feel like he knows it where he's like, you know, if you would, because I kind of also thought, like, maybe I'll just wait and get to know him and then name him. Yeah. But then it just became kind of like it just fit. But as I've gotten to know him now over the years, I feel like I would absolutely have called him Wilford Brimley. <laughs> he he, has he does resemble a Wilford Brimley. Right? He resembles him a little bit. He definitely has the same mannerisms and countenance and... I would have called him Wilford Brimley, but now, you know, he's he's Carrot, Beans Baxter, Squeakers McBeakers, Henderson. <laughs> so I just add names instead of changing his original name. Well, I that is like one thing that I do love is is finding out the secret nicknames of people's pets because that shit cracks me yes. up. <laughs> and it's always like 18 deep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, but that's what happens, I think, naturally as you get to know your pet. Yeah. You're like, oh, this is a cute little mannerism. This is a cute little thing. Yeah. My sister is to blame um, because she started calling Sophie Sophadia, like a quesadilla. So she was like, Sophadia, and then shortened it to Miss Dia. (laughs) (laughs) And now she's just called Dia. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, we're just gonna get. What is she gonna be? D at a certain point. I think we we do call her D once in a while. But it's like the bastardization of her original name has gone so far. <laughs> this is some true Mariah Carey, the evolution of Mimi. I cannot. I love it. I love it. Oh. I can actually. I can because I love it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, and I also. Um, I've been having, you see that I'm drinking a coffee, which I know I said I would never do again Yeah. while we're recording, but this is a stabilizing coffee because I got three hours of sleep last night. Oh shit. <laughs> Why? So this is just to bring me up to my level. Um, I occasionally have insomnia. It used to be really bad. I think there were actual years where I functioned on like three or four hours of sleep. Wow. And it greatly contributed to my depression, yeah. which I didn't know at the time. Like, no one had ever made that connection for me. Sure, sure. Um, but years where I didn't sleep more than four hours a night. And I think this is why this is why I have such a, a strict bedtime routine, which I know I make fun of. But this is part of the reason why. I go to bed at 9 p.m. Because if I am not asleep by 11, I will not sleep for the night. I'm just up. If I'm if I'm up at eleven, I will also be up at three o'clock in the morning, in the morning, and that is just how it works for me. And I know that, and I and I know I've tried all the tricks. I know everyone is always so nice and kind, and they want to write in and give us tips and tricks. And you know, I don't 
needed this time. I know what what's going on. I know what I can do. I, I tried getting up, walking around. I try. I've tried everything. I've tried genuinely everything. I've tried medication. Everything. I think it's when I'm at levels of like really high stress now is when my insomnia tends to come out. Um, but that's why I act like an old lady and go to bed at nine o'clock because I'm like I need to be sure that I'm going to be asleep by eleven. Mm-hmm. And if I'm sometimes I'm asleep at nine and it's great. Sometimes I just need like that two hours to level out and I'm asleep. But I I was thinking about it a lot when I woke up. I'm like, God, what I, I definitely have stress right now. <laughs> but what is going on? And this is it's gonna be so embarrassing to admit. It's so embarrassing. But that's the the tagline to our podcast is what's embarrassing this week. <laughs> um I think I'm afraid of the dark. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of the reason I have to go to bed early. Yeah. And I think I'm afraid of the dark because I kind of, I've had a lot of childhood trauma and part of my childhood trauma involved a lot of physical and sexual abuse. And so sometimes when I'm awake at night, even though I know it's not possible, like I start seeing shadowy figures mm-hmm. like waiting for me. And then I'm I'm definitely not going to sleep after that. <laughs> like if I think of that even a little bit, I'm not going to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. So it's part of like a PTSD thing that I'm working through in therapy. Yeah. But it's embarrassing to be 44 years old and afraid of the fucking dark. No, it's not. Like there it's not. <laughs> I mean, when you when you understand that it's contributed to past trauma, it's not embarrassing at all. And on top of that, like I mean, there there are definite situations in people's lives that lead them to very almost very simple fears, right? Yeah. And I mean, the fact that you're talking about it, I think, is really helpful because I think that there's a lot of people that are that have a fear of kind of revealing this, like, you know, you're like, oh my god, I'm a grown woman and I'm scared to wait for the doctor to come in the room or whatever, which was a big thing for me. But it's that thing of like, yeah, I think talking about it is very helpful. And I, I mean, I hate to hear that, that you're struggling with, with, um, sleeping because that to me, like, Oh my God. When, when you were talking about not sleeping, that is like one of the worst feelings in the world for me is not being able to sleep when I really want to. Same. It's grueling. It's grueling. Grueling. And it feels miserable. And it makes me feel super lonely and alone because I'm like, I'm the only person Mm -hmm. awake right now. And I can't sleep. Why is everybody else sleeping? And I'm not. And I have nobody to call because everybody's asleep. And I'm just by myself, you know? Yes. Um, I hate that feeling. And I'm so, so I'm sorry you're going through it, you know? But yeah, I think obviously Mm. like it is directly related to things that you've experienced in your past. And I'm really happy that you're in therapy and you're going to work it out, hopefully. And um, Oh, yeah, we are we are working it out for sure. But it's just it's wild, too, because I just never feel felt like I, ne- I never made that correlation until recently. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because I didn't really have enough space to like. I just didn't allow myself to really kind of think think it through yeah it was just always such a part of me Mm -hmm. and my process and like my insomnia when I was younger and when I was a teenager and then into my 20s and 
Like, it was just always there. So I thought, well, this is just how I am. I'm just afraid of the dark. And then I started saying, like, wait, that's actually not, that's not standard for most people. (laughs) So I should really look into this and talk about this. And I'm glad that I brought it up in therapy because we've really been, like, digging into it. But... Yeah. Last night was a fucking doozy. I just didn't want you to see this giant coffee and be like, oh, no, she's going to be on one. No. I promise. No. (laughs) This is not going to be an over the top episode. I'm just leveling up to like normal. No. (laughs) Listen, I am pro caffeine. I am pro extra caffeine. (laughs) Uh, I know that when we listen to the audio of the days that we've drank like four or five cups of coffee before we record, I know that we like are individually horrified at ourselves, but I think (laughs) when it gets put, when it gets assembled, when the episode, like, you know, uh, this is maybe like too much of a, how the sausage is made for you guys. But like, um, (laughs) when the, when the episode actually gets assembled and Casey makes it sound all nice, I'm actually like. This is not as bad as I thought. Like the raw audio sounds crazy, but then when it's all fixed, (laughs) it is like, oh, okay. Um, I'm cool with this. Uh, In fact, I kind of love it. I kind of love the days that were insane. I kind of love it. And also our listeners have spoken. They want us on caffeine. They're like, don't stop if you need it have it yes yes but also i i i encourage to you to feel good and if you've got to like pound two you know 32 ounce (laughs) duncan d's coffees then do it like just to level out you know level everything out that's fine that's fine totally totally i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna have another one after this (laughs) because i have to get through the day yeah but i'm absolutely going to bed at seven tonight yeah no i'm i'm happy to and the that. sun will still be up the sun will still be up i've noticed that now that we daylight savings timed yeah sun is popping at seven o'clock and i will absolutely still be going to bed and feeling fine about it yeah <laughs> and i will hopefully sleep for 12 hours and the world will write itself again It'll be great. I'm uh, I'm really uh, hoping that that happens tonight. I won't I won't text you after seven. I know that. Um, <laughs> but you will not get any memes from me after seven p.m. For the I can uh, I guarantee you, you can send them. Yeah. I'll wake up to them. You can send them. <laughs> I'll silence that phone. Don't worry about that. Well, yeah. I uh, I'm I'm wishing you some good sleep tonight. And um, you know, in the meantime you know, hang in there with everything and you're going to get through these patches, you know, can't last forever. Thanks, bud. No, they're getting better. It is getting better and better. The more that I look into it and kind of address it and face it, it is getting better, but I would like to not be afraid of the dark at 44 years old. (laughs) I just think it's, we're going to have to like, you and I are going to have to, go out to the desert one of these days and do a a, a retreat just me and you where yes. we're just like <laughs> microdosing and telling each other everything our deepest our deepest fears our craziest thoughts our cra- I would love it yeah i would love it i first my favorite i have several favorite things that you say but my Top two all-time favorite, I know this is going to be a Millie Banger sentence, is when it starts with either, okay, first of all, (laughs) I know it's going to be fire, 
And the second is when you, whenever you say we should go to the desert, I'm like, here it comes. <laughs> some some good shit's coming. You know, some 311 shit is about to pop off. Some 311 <laughs> shit. These are the the two the top two phases of Millie is okay. First of all, and let's go to the desert. <laughs> and I'm like, now we're getting to the real shit. <laughs> I am stupid. Um. <laughs> no, you're the best. It never fails to lift my spirits oh. and brighten my day because everything that comes after that is always true and real. <laughs> so let's go to the desert and microdose and tell each other our deepest fears. That is true and real. Okay, first of all, and then you'll start popping off about something pop culture or something that happened with friends or something that happened in real life. And I'm like, this is also true and real. Oh, God. my favorite. <laughs> Who have I become? I have changed since elementary school. We have a very interesting episode this week, (laughs) I think. Yeah. Do you want to tell people what the theme is? I could not be happier to tell people what the theme is because our theme this week is that one friend. Yes. Now, and we all have had or currently have that one friend. (laughs) Yes. So just to give you a a tiny bit of background about how we came up with this theme, I think this was like something where I wanted to talk about my movie. And then I was like, what? How can we fit it into a theme? And then and then I kind of just blurted out this, you know, that one friend idea. Then Mm -hmm. you picked your movie. And I was like, oh, now this theme is going in this other direction. I mean, it's the same thing. It's the same theme. But I'm like, but there's this like component to it now that didn't occur to me mm-hmm. when I was initially kind of pitching it. Right. And now right. it's like more interesting than what I originally pitched. <laughs> so I to me, I think we we talk a lot about friendship on this podcast, obviously, not just because we're friends, but we we love talking about movies about friendship, about female friendship, about, you know, sibling friendships and relationships between, you know, fr- you know, new friends, old friends, family members, that kind of thing, right? But I also think that there's like a little a, there's just something that interests me about old friends like people that you that Mm -hmm. you were friends with maybe as children or something like that that you haven't seen in a while and then also like friendships that evolve from like work situations which i feel like is the case for your movie so it ended up being kind of more than i thought i think initially when i pitched it and i'm happy that it went in this direction yeah and there's there i think there's a lot of similarities and crossovers with our films in that way, where we're discussing friendship in two completely different worlds, but we're seeing a similar effect of what that friendship has done or what it means to people um, in these movies. And I just, I absolutely, I, I haven't seen your film in a long time. And it is so wild. <laughs> it's wilder than I remember. Yes. Because I forgot the whole play component like there was a lot that i forgot after the initial reveal of your movie yes (laughs) so i was very happy to watch it again because i think it fits that 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 one friend in a very interesting way which is 
you know, what do you do with an older friendship when one of you has evolved and one of you hasn't? Or what do you do with an older friendship when you're just both two completely different people? Right. And what are you holding on to and what connects you or keeps you together? So I think your film is very interesting to me in that way. Yeah. And my film is just like, hmm. Listen, when when I saw, I never saw your film, why, why would I? <gasps> well, of course I not. Have. It came of out course in not. It was made in 2006. <laughs> <laughs> the running joke on this podcast is that I've never seen a movie past the year 2000. <laughs> and I and it's like again, and I don't want people to think I'm 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 doing this for theatrics or something. For shame because I fucking loved your movie. I loved it so oh. much. I had a nightmare about it. Just gonna throw that out there. Um, well, because again, sticking with the theme of you watching movies from the 2000s that I've asked you to watch, it was stressful. <laughs> I've never picked like a calm, nice movie from the early 2000s. You're, like, I'm not picking Step Step Brothers. Yes. What? You are. <laughs> I'm always picking like some stressful shit. <laughs> yes. A, cu- a couple of constants on this pod. I haven't seen a movie past 2000. Danielle only picks stressful movies. Both of those things are are true for this pick. However, I loved it. And it also, again, when I was talking about, like when I first was kind of thinking about this theme, I was thinking about it in a certain way. But then when I saw your movie, I was like, oh no, this theme is actually about, to me anyway, it's about the intensity of certain friendships, right? And yes, that is an interesting concept for me right because that that phrase that one friend dot 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 right is kind of ominous right because it suggests like oh here's somebody that you're friends with but it's a little bit weird and what what are the dynamics here like you know it's not probably like a real easy buoyant like friendship it's something a little bit more complicated and it happens with old friends that you haven't seen in forever, certainly. But then it also happens with people that you meet, like, in weirder circumstances, like at work or in specific, you know, places. And mm-hmm. that's when it changed is when I was like, oh, this theme is about the intensity of friendship and how maybe there is attraction at work for, for some mm-hmm. of these friendships that sort of plays into that intensity. And... I was rocked. Yes. I mean, after after I saw both these movies at the same, like in one sitting, I was like, "We have dug I a hole for ourselves. I hope we can get out of it." I told you, I'm like, "Look, you need to watch your movie in the morning, <laughs> and then watch my movie on a totally different day." Oh my god! <laughs> I tried to set you up. I know for success because these were very stressful films. Like, it's like I I felt like I hereditaried myself. Like, that's kind of the feeling of, of when I watched Hereditary at your insistence. And then I felt crazy. It was like, oh, these two movies, that's that was the same feeling. I was coming out of it going like, holy fuck, this is the most intense shit. I cannot wait oh my God. to talk about your movie. I want to hear everything you have to say about it. I'm so excited. Well, we're just going to jump right in. Yep. You're going first. And I'm going to tell you that my... My pick for the film that I'm using for this theme of that one friend was 
released in 2006. It was directed by Richard Eyre. It was written by Patrick Marber, but based on the novel by Zoe Heller. And my movie is Notes on a Scandal. You promised to end it. Why didn't you? I thought you understood what friendship means. Tell me about your friendship with Mrs. Hart. I've been hearing some rather alarming rumors. Yeah, we got to have to get into I'm it. I'm doing breathing. I'm doing breathing techniques. I know. You're, you're like lamazing yourself. I'm doing like... Inhale for four, exhale for eight. How 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 did you much did you like this movie? Well, on a scale of yogic breathing <laughs> to Lamaze, <laughs> I am on yogic breathing. <laughs> Into the nose, out through the mouth. But I I think hereditary is like Lamaze breathing. Yes. <laughs> and this is like a like a calming yes. breathing. Yes. But this movie is wild. It is truly wild. It is a movie that I have thought about regularly since i first saw it like the ending of this movie gives me actual chills and it is not a horror film in the traditional sense but it is a horror story in a larger sense and i think judy dench who plays one of the main characters we'll get into her um has never been better i thought she was outstanding in this film and Kate Blanchett also. I think Kate Blanchett, she has such a cool career. And this is a week where I watched this movie and then I watched Thor Ragnarok again. <laughs> it's it's you know, my, my happy place. Yes. And she plays the villain in that. She plays like a comic book superhero villain in Thor Ragnarok. And then she plays this. T- it was just wild to see the scope of and be reminded of the scope of her acting ability. Oh, yeah. And I just think that they're, they're, these are two actors at the top of their fucking game in this movie in a very disturbing, in more ways than one, story. Yes. And this is a movie that for the first time ever on this podcast has three different occasions where all hell breaks loose. <laughs> and I will mark each of them for you. Without ruining the ending, which, again, gives me actual chills. So I understand why you had nightmares. Yes. So <laughs> my my one sentence synopsis, just so we can jump on in. New high school teacher Sheba learns the importance of no new friends when she falls in and inadvertently betrays the crankiest, most vindictive teacher in school. Mm, that is so good. <laughs> It starts you off on the path. This movie is a journey. Um, I think that you'll recognize a lot of actors in it also if you watch a lot of British film or TV. But I think the best way into it is just to kind of describe who these main characters are. So Judy Dench is playing the role of Barbara Covet. This is the first time where I really paid attention to the character names because Barbara Covet and Sheba Hart distinctly describe who these characters are at their core um yeah that's amazing actually that just kind of blew my mind a little bit right like barbara covet shiva hart and it really does play into the shape of who these characters are and um barbara is an older teacher at this high school and i know that for the purposes of the uk when i say high school you mean college And when I say college, you mean university. But I'm using the American vernacular here because that's just what I'm comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's high school. 
And Barbara's been teaching for a long ass time. And let me tell you, Barbara journals everything. Decades worth of journals. She logs everything. Mm -hmm. And when the movie opens, they're kind of panning over all of the books that she's been handwriting all of these logs in. Which again, as you get to the end of the movie, has a totally different feel from when you first see her writing. Um, She is not only super hateful, but she's kind of hated in this school. The kids are scared of her. She has said in two different places, she says, first of all, that that teaching is crowd control and I'm not popular, but they respect me. Yeah. So she is well aware of her own reputation and is proud of it. And look, she has her cat. She has a mysterious friend named Jennifer Dodd that people occasionally ask her about. And we will learn more about Jennifer Dodd as the story goes on. But she's a very compact individual. She has routines. She has a very solitary life. And at the beginning of the film, we feel like that life is by design and she's okay with it. And then as the film goes on, we realize that may not be true. Counter to her, we have Kate Blanchett playing Sheba Hart. And Sheba is more passive. She doesn't really have any control over her students. Um, she is the art teacher. She's the new art teacher. So she's kind of chaotic um, and very like floaty, kind of, you know, lives in, doesn't really live in her head so much. She just kind of lives in the fantasy world. She's reckless and quite immature, as we will discover. She's married with two kids, and her husband is Bill Nye, who just plays. Uh, he's so good. One of the explosive. He's so good. So good. And I think one of the more explosive All Hell Breaks Loose moments directly includes him. Oh, yeah. And he is, again, fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, she, so Sheba and Barbara meet when Sheba is trying to reprimand one of her students, the student named Connolly, in the hallway, and she's failing. And Barbara, Barbara steps in and is like, this is how you do it. If you need any help, let me know. And Barbara starts to develop this kind of fascination with Sheba. And I'm wondering what you think. Like, what did you think when you first started to see their friendship developing? Like, what did you think that one friend was more about the intensity of a new relationship? Or did you think that, that one friend was more about how different they were? Yeah. I, I think it's the latter. I think I felt like the Sheba character was like a breath of fresh air that mm. popped into Barbara's life in that way. Because yes. there, are, there are times where, I mean, I love, the one thing I love, and and I don't love this every time, but, you know, we've talked about, like, narration in movies. Mm. And sometimes it's great, and sometimes it's a little, uh, like, you're like, oh, well, you know, maybe it's because you need the narration to kind of get us through this film. In this case, it is perfect because it really does give you a sense of what Barbara's interior life is like. And throughout that narration, when she first meets her, she's going and and talking about all of the ways that Sheba is different than anybody she really Mm -hmm. encounters, which is that she's like this open book. You know what I mean? She just like talks yes. about herself all the time. She's like, you know, she's fascinated by that. And she's this 
uh, kind of urban bohemian, as she kind of refers to her on occasion. She's just like this, you know, it's almost like somebody would come across now in like LA or New York where it's like, (laughs) oh, here's this like young, beautiful person who like works in the arts and, you know, has these like, you know, interesting children and this like older husband and they live in this beautiful house that was inherited by, you know, her Mm because her family comes from money. And she's just kind of going through all the ways in, in which this woman is just so different from her. And I think that that is what, I was like, oh, no, she's completely taken by this woman because she's just everything that she's not. You know what I mean? And that can be really intoxicating, you know, in friendship. Yes. Yeah, I'm really glad that you said that because I think that that is a very important point of this film is that intoxication that Barbara feels being in her orbit and kind of... And I agree with you that the narration of this film was spot on because when you have a character who's that lonely... I think that you need to understand their motivations somehow and understand what their interior life is like that has led them to this place of such abject loneliness. And in the beginning, without the narration, I think it's very easy to say, well, she's just, you know, like a bitter old lady who, you know, kind of probably designed her life that way or nobody could stand her. So that's why she's alone. And as you hear her narration, you realize this is a very smart, very calculating and very deliberate woman right oh my god there was it was towards the beginning it was the first time so they become friends obviously at the school and -hmm. again she's kind of seen as the she calls herself a battle axe right she's like the old crone battle axe teacher that nobody likes and here's the effervescent beautiful art teacher right and they somehow become friends and then uh sheba invites barbara to to supper or whatever at the house that whole scene where she is getting ready to go to her house and she oh. puts on that like she puts on that like Barbara Bush outfit basically it's <laughs> like yes. her pearls and <laughs> her <laughs> her Barbara Bush outfit and then she's like done up and then the daughter comes in and completely just fucking decimates it like she comes in and is like why are you looking so posh like where are you going and immediately she lies and says oh it's because I have an appointment in town because she's like. No, actually, I. this is the best thing that I'm going to do all week. This is it. Yes. This is my whole, yeah, this is my, my event. Yes. And like, I'm now shamed by this young girl for getting so dressed up to just be at somebody's house. And I was like, yo, that sliced me open in a way that I can't express. Ugh. Oh, what? Absolutely. 100%. Because it also made me feel like, this is a different generation. Yep. Like this is a generation that would get an invitation to something and treat it like they were being invited to meet a, the queen. Yeah. Every invitation had the same amount of gravitas. Yeah. And every social situation was a chance for you to be on display and for you to be your best. Yeah. And it, just that generational difference hit me in that moment too. And it really cut me up as well. Yeah. And and it goes back to that their differences because, you know, Barbara has this sense of properness about things and Sheba doesn't. She's a younger person. She's like real chill, relaxed, you know, whatever. Like I'm just kind of hanging out doing whatever, you know, being messy and I don't care. And that And that, again, I think, had the film not established any of that, um, I would have liked it less. I'll just say that. Right. Yeah. I like that. And I like that. They, I agree. And I think that it's, I really like that they dug into and started out by 
looking at what each of these women's lives were like apart from each other so that when they do come together, you even understand their friendship more. Yes. And it kind of brings you to a deeper understanding. And they have, I mean, one of the funniest parts of that dinner scene as well for me was when um, they start dancing and it's like a tradition. (laughs) It's a tradition in the house for the family to dance together on Sunday. And Barbara looks like she wants to crawl under the floorboards and die. Like she is just like, I cannot with these fucking hippies. I, at that moment... I was like, I need to see what Dame Judy Dench is going to do in this moment. Like, both her character and the actual woman. Because she's like, (laughs) you are not pulling me off this couch where I'm smoking my cigarette and my pearls to dance to some (laughs) reggae song. Like, I am not whimsical at all. And you cannot get me to do this. And then there was, I was like, wait for it. She's either going to completely shut down or she's just going to like try to do a little pop, you know? And then there's this moment where she sort of starts it. And then it just, the scene just ends and you're like, oh, thank God. I don't know if I could have watched yeah, I- <laughs> Judy Dench go there. I couldn't do it. <laughs> and that was such a smart editorial choice as well, because you get to see how pent up Barbara is like she's so and she's like me I do not have the kind of joy in my heart where dance is ever coming out of me so I really connected to that character in that moment and I didn't like it I didn't like that I connected to that character in that moment because I'm like she is so like locked down right and there is no so when she started i was like oh shit i don't want to see this either yes which is worse yes which is worse which is which is gonna be more uncomfortable and yeah that was that was a sliding doors do or die moment for her character because <laughs> i was like <laughs> we as we as the viewer know she ain't this but bill nye's and, and- character is like I'm going to go for it. I'm going to just try to get her to dance with me. And we're all like, shut it down. Shut it down now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. So smart. It made the, that, that scene encapsulates so much of who each of those characters are yep. as well. It just like, it was such a beautiful, brilliant way to start this off yeah. because you're right. There was so many cringeworthy moments to prepare us for all of the cringeworthy moments to oh, come. Oh, my God. First and foremost, Barbara takes such great joy in her friendship with Sheba at school. And she kind of becomes a little Machiavellian when she discovers that Sheba and Connolly, the student that she was reprimanding in the hallway, they're having a a holiday play and um, she goes looking for Sheba because she saved her a seat. And when she finds Sheba in her art room, Sheba has been, she catches her in the act of giving Connolly oral sex. And Sheba doesn't see her, but she absolutely sees them. And this is something that we've talked about a little bit on the podcast before. We talked about Big and, you know, some of, you know, some of the body change films, but there's something very strange about how sex with a minor when it's a boy on film 
is never presented in the same way as it is when it's a girl. And the thing that I actually appreciated about this movie is they get into later, they get into why this is so wrong. And it's weird that I appreciated that because I didn't expect it. I expected they would just brush it under the rug like every other fucking movie does. But there's something so distinctly wrong with Sheba, who is a married older woman, teacher, woman in a position of power, assaulting this young boy. Yeah. And it's presented from every side, which, again, I appreciated because it was more thoughtful than most movies about this. Most movies don't take the time to show how this kind of relationship could evolve, but then also what is so distinctly wrong with it. So I appreciated that they did that. But this is the first all hell breaks loose moment is when Barbara discovers that this has happened. Oh, my God. And (laughs) talk about what is she going to (laughs) do? Like she has all of this information. And what's weird, too, is that you can see it breaking Barbara down on several levels. It breaks her down professionally. And this is all happening in the span of just a couple of frames It breaks her down professionally because this is so decidedly not what you do. Your job is with children. You do not have sex with children. It breaks her down personally because she has become so delusional about how close she is with Sheba. So the fact that Sheba could keep a secret like this from her is devastating. And then it breaks her down emotionally because she truly has, she has no space for understanding how if a sexual relationship was going to evolve with someone, how it wasn't with her, which we will also get into in a minute. Yeah, yeah. So it breaks her down on all these levels, which she becomes, again, like so Machiavellian because she does confess to Sheba that she understands that she has caught her, essentially. And she's so happy when Sheba is like, confides in her and needs her and she tells her she'll end it. And she understands that what she's done is wrong, but then she doesn't end it. And when Barbara finds out that she hasn't ended it, that's when all hell breaks loose for a second time. Yes. Oh, my God. Because there's another teacher that comes over to Barbara's house. Her cat has just died. And I think that it's it's the combination, the one-two punch of she finds out that Sheba hasn't ended the relationship, but then she also needs Sheba and in her deepest time of need... Sheba cannot be with her. She's with her family. They're going to like a holiday play for her son. And he's really excited about it. And so the fact that her cat has died is not taking priority for Sheba. And Barbara is someone who's like, my whole life is prioritizing you. So why can't you prioritize me? And she doesn't. She can't in that moment. So when this other teacher comes over, (laughs) Brian, and he's like, oh, I'm kind of in love with Sheba. Barbara just slightly lets it slip that Sheba likes younger men much younger. And that's all Brian needs to set forth all hell breaking loose for the third and final, well, not even final, but the third time. (laughs) Because suddenly it all comes out. Yeah. And the headmaster reveals, you know, the headmaster's talking to them and then Barbara kind of has a has a part in this and there's a point where Barbara thinks she might be implicated in the crime because she knew about it. Um, the scene that I was talking about that I, earlier that I love is that when 
Bill Nye, her husband, confronts her. Because now that this news has come out, everybody knows. So her children know, her husband knows, everybody knows. And he is the one to say to her, because she you're watching her try to rationalize it. And this is someone who's had like, like she's had her like Susie and the Banshees punk rock pass. And she's always kind of been allowed to just do whatever she felt she should do from, yes. a, you know, kind of a, a bohemian point of view. And they're having this argument. And the way she tries to rationalize it is out of control. And he's the one that points that out because she says to him, well, you were my teacher. We met when you were my teacher. I was your student. And he's like, we were in college. You were an adult. This is a 15-year-old boy. Right. And she's like, oh, well, it's not like he's innocent. And he's like, of course he's innocent. He's 15 years old. And so, again, he is, him trying to rationalize with her is the wildest scene in this film. Yes. And it's so, it's acted so perfectly but it's so intense to watch them going back and forth and him being the voice of reason and saying, like, not only have you fucked our family and fucked our relationship, but you've ruined the life of this boy, whether you know it or not or willing to admit it or not. Yeah. This is a fucked up situation. And I love that they actually take the time to have that scene and point that out. Yeah. he Bill Nye in this scene was un believable like he's so angry and he's like spitting and i was mm -hmm. like oh shit i mean this is like such an intense conversation to have you know and uh it there i mean it really drove home just how well acted this movie is like all of the principal you know characters i'm just like wow these are just like such talented talented actors to be in the moment like this that they're in and being this emotional yes. you know yes everyone was emoting on this on this screen yeah. and in this film and it's not even that's not even the end of the movie so you you have to, I, I won't spoil the rest i won't spoil the rest but you have to keep watching to figure out who is jennifer dodd how does she relate to barbara what happens to sheba what happens to her family what happens to barbara um, there is a point where Sheba, who feels like she has nowhere to go, moves in with Barbara. Oof. And like I said, I will not spoil this movie because this is a movie that must be watched. But from the perspective of that one friend, I think that you're absolutely correct that the intensity of this friendship is what immediately made me think of this film. But also the vindictiveness of when... And that happens at any age, adult, teen, it happens across the board. When you are a friend who has felt slighted and you have no way to communicate that to the person who has slighted you, yeah. what do you do? Do you shut down? Do you fight back? What do you do? And this is just a sterling example to me of how sometimes the intensity of friendship, it's not... It's not really the best way to have a friendship, and it's not the most welcome way to have a friendship, especially if it's one-sided. Yeah. The, the one thing that I think unites our, both of our movies, I'll talk about it when I get to my movie, too, is this idea of unrequited love, right? Mm. And I think Barbara has obviously experienced this many times in her life, right? Yes. 
she she's found that you know may and you know this this doesn't get discussed in the film and i'm just you know i'm now i'm just riffing on a character that i don't know this information obviously through the film but it doesn't seem that she had much of a dating life you know mm-hmm. it seemed that maybe she was even closeted you know for for a mm-hmm. long time maybe even still and that she found that the only way that she felt like she could find connection like romantic connection is by having these intense friendships with yes. the women that she works with right mhm which is a pro- it's a problematic well to get water from i'm just going to say that right now <laughs> work <laughs> That, Don't shit, I Rui. want that to be my next tattoo. <laughs> I want that to be my next tattoo. That is a problematic well to draw water yes. from. Don't shit where you eat is the other way to say it. But it's also like, <laughs> to me, it, it it that was the tension of this movie for me, was knowing that about her yes. character. And, and because there's this back and forth about Barbara where... I was like, is she morally offended by what's happening with Sheba and this boy? Mm-hmm. Or is she upset that she Sheba is giving her attention to anybody else but her? Do you know yes. what I mean? And I think yes. and I think that that's where she gets her leverage from in the film, which is basically like, well, I know you're doing something illegal. I have this on you and I'm going to use it so that you'll always have to need me and I can have Mm. this fantasy of us being like in a Boston marriage or whatever she was thinking, you know what I mean? And it's, and it's, it's very intense and it's very like, like that to me was the movie, that part of the movie that I was just like, holy shit, like, where is this going to go? You know? Yeah. Yeah. You hit it spot on. Like what exactly and she keeps it real wily and loose. So you're not quite sure until kind of the very end how to answer that question. Like, what is making her the most upset about this? Yes. And you do get kind of an answer for it. But there's something that's what becomes sinister to me about those journals in the end is you realize she has all these years where she has written about and lived this fantasy life through these friendships, but also how she recounts the stories to herself in her journals. And that story is a fantasy. Yes, yes. And so when you're looking at all of these years of her living in her head and in these relationships in this way, you're like, how often has this happened to her? And it has just become a habit and a pattern for her. Mm -hmm. Very disturbing. Yeah. And and, and there there were times where I felt very much for her character. Because, in, mm-hmm. in, you know, in spite of all the uh, of the sinister aspects of, of, of what she was doing and, and manipulating people, there were some like moments where she did talk about her profound loneliness that I did feel for her character. Yes. Like when she was basically yes. in the bathtub talking about like Sheba doesn't actually know loneliness on the level that I know it because, you know, and, and like I just was again like cut open by all by all of this stuff and i mean that that was like part of the movie for me why i loved it so much is that i'm like wow this is like really intense emotional processing that's happening within this character Mm -hmm. in this movie and it's like it's you know uh, in some movies where where that 
there's an attempt at that and it doesn't go enough <laughs> sometimes for right. me. Yeah, it doesn't go deep uh, enough. Doesn't go yeah. deep enough. It really hits in this movie. And I and Oh yeah. I, I was like, there were times where I felt legitimately sorry for Barbara. And then there were other times where I'm like, baby girl, what is you doing? type of stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Barbara, this is not the way, Barbara. This is not the way. We know this, Barbara. What are you doing? Oh my god! Oh yeah, this is this is a real talk back to the screen kind of movie too. Oh at some parts, god. which I love. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I think everyone should watch it. It is, it's it's again, it's a movie that will stay with you because it is so masterfully crafted, masterfully acted, and beautifully presented in all of its complications. That I just. I think it's it's a stunning film. It's a really sterling example of that one friend, but it is a stunning film. Yes. I mean, it is, this is Dame Judy's movie to shine. Like she, her character, mm-hmm. her acting, like everything about it. I mean, this is her, I mean, I, I don't know if I ever saw a movie uh, that if, her performance has affected me as much as this movie, to be honest. And Completely. I know I say this literally, Literally every fucking time you bring a movie to the podcast that I haven't seen, I completely thoroughly enjoyed this film. Like I loved it. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I'm thinking about it today, uh, probably for the next couple weeks. I did not get good sleep last <laughs> night because of this movie. I, I, I cannot believe I hadn't seen it. And again, for shame, I'm I am the idiot. Am I the asshole? <laughs> yes, I am for not having seen this. So, thank you. And it fits oh, the my, theme perfectly. My true pleasure. Fits the theme perfectly. Yeah. And it's my true pleasure. I'm so glad that you got to see it. I hope our listeners get to all will also avail themselves of watching it. Um, but it does. It fits the theme. And you're speaking of our theme. Your film. <laughs> kept me awake at night for so many other reasons than I thought it would. And I I can't wait to talk about it. Well, speaking of uh, emotional intensity, we got another one. <laughs> we got another one. So, <laughs> so my film for the theme, That One Friend, is a movie from 2000. It was written by Mike White, directed by Miguel Arteta, and it's called Chuck and Buck. He went by Chuck and I was Buck, so uh, we were Chuck and Buck. <laughs> Chuck and Buck, my best friend. Okay, let me let me just say this. I, I, I will I will say this before we get into the the nut meat of this uh, film. So <laughs> right off the bat, I saw this movie online on one of the world's biggest <laughs> platforms, okay? And it was an SD. It was in standard def. And the minute I turned it on, I went, ugh, God. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I, it looked like it did when I saw it 20 years ago. And I mean, it was just like old quality. I don't know how you saw it, but I, mm-hmm. it just goes back. Oh, same way. Yes, it goes back to and that. it was fuzzy as fuck. Oh my God, I was like, <laughs> This is an actual indie movie for, that has not changed one bit. <laughs> and it goes back to that conversation we had with Brian Sauer, like, you know, about when we talked to him about physical media. I mean, here's mm-hmm. the thing. These 
indie movies from like the 90s and the early 2000s, I think are painfully underserved. And and I, I, I don't yes. know why that is. I think it's just that uh, we just haven't played catch up on all of the restorations from this era. But I find that indie mm-hmm. movies, especially from the 90s and the 2000s, are like, they're still looking like shit. And all, all of this yeah. is to say... Please, someone out there with the money and the means, restore this movie ASAP and put it out on Blu-ray so I can sleep at night. Because I was like, wow. (laughs) Like, you know. (laughs) I was like, this was like, the quality was bad. It's tough to watch. Yeah. Yeah, it, it makes it tough to watch because it instantly puts you off. It instantly puts you in a very agitated state. Yes, and it, it, like I'm not gonna lie, first five minutes I was like, oh, this is charming. It's like renting a video from the video store. But then I was like, oh, this movie, I need this movie to be in HD. Like, come on, this is this is not nothing. This is a, a movie that people still talk about and Mike White's involved and all these other famous people are involved. The Whiteses are involved. Come on, put it, somebody yeah. restore it, right? But the, the top two characters in this film alone with their power and wealth could restore this film. But it, but it, like I said, this it's like uh, it, it is that for a lot of the movies from this era. So I'll just say that. But anyway, that's just my plea. Um, but to talk about Mike White a little bit, I mean, we talked about him briefly when I think was when we were both watching The White Lotus, right? I don't know when that mm-hmm. was. Um yeah. But for those unfamiliar with Mike White, I mean, he's been writing and directing in Hollywood for at least the past 20 years. And, you know, he's done stuff like The School of Rock, Enlightened, which we've talked about. Oh. We both loved it. Laura Dern on HBO. Canceled early. I was so pissed about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, White Lotus, which, you know, was a bit, you know, came out, um, God, what was it, like six months ago, maybe, or something, maybe... But yeah. it was, a, you know, a show on HBO as well. Um, but then Mike White, in addition to writing, you know, he also um, was like a contestant on The Amazing Race and Survivor. So it's kind of amazing. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I love that. He's just like, I'm just going to go out there and be on reality TV, too. It's kind of amazing. It's so good. Did he do one with his dad? Yes, he did one with his dad. <laughs> like Mr. White's also up there being like, yep. <laughs> Well, and like, you know, he's talked about this and there, this is information, uh, this information's out there, but you know, his father was a deeply religious man. I think he like, he was a writer for some very famous preacher or, you know, like some, a Jerry Falwell or like a Jim Baker type, but then right. he, he, he came out of the closet at late in life, apparently, but yeah, Mike White is uh, is bisexual. And so I think, you know, it obviously changed the nature of their relationship in cer- certain ways, but they were on that TV show together. So if, but if you don't know Mike White, if you don't know sort of like his vibe, I would say that he typically writes stories that are essentially black comedies, but then also can, can occasionally veer into like the thriller zone. <laughs> It's kind of like how yes. intense they can be. <laughs> and, and I think that, again, I think that's, it's just that he writes a lot about psychological and personal things. Like he, he especially about loneliness, which is, I think, what, what bonds our movies together in, in this way this week. Absolutely. 
And I think Enlightened, he wrote after he had his own breakdown. And so a lot of his work is super autobiographical. Right. And, and, and I just think anybody who is writing on that level, who is kind of uncovering, you know, just the, the, these little tiny bits of like, the, of things that happen in friendships and in relationships that aren't cute. Mm-hmm. It's a little unsettling. And there's just like this extreme honesty that I, I personally kind of gravitate towards. And, um, you know, Absolutely. some people are put off by that. No, no doubt about it. But, you know, I, I, cause he is really willing to go there a lot of times. And, um, you know, some people don't want to have their minds blown like that. I completely understand. I am not one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Because yes, this movie is very dark and uncomfortable at many points. And, uh, but I have to say, after having not seen it in about 20 years, I have changed my mind about that a little bit. Like when I saw it 20 years ago, I was like, holy fuck, this is insane. But now I feel like there are, in this movie, there are moments of that honesty, that extreme honesty. And maybe, maybe a little bit of hopefulness. Yeah. TBD, I, I don't know, hard to say. But I think that when it comes to that idea that we talked about, like that one friend, I, I think that in this movie, it could certainly mm-hmm. go both ways, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I absolutely know what you mean. And I think I that's something that, that both of our movies also have in common is that in this movie, Buck, this the Mike White character, yes. is such a, a stunted individual. And I feel like Barbara is also very stunted. And th- so there's something so strange about each of these characters. And in Buck's case, you're like, why yeah. is he so odd and out of place with his own peers and with his own time? And he just seems out of place. But you're right. There's a real hearkening back to like a loneliness and hopefulness that comes from being like kind of kept in a place where you're you're young because that is you know to me that's being a teenager summed up yeah to a fucking t it's like you're lonely and you're hopeful yeah <laughs> so, like, that makes sense to me that like at that point of development you know that's where buck still kind of is primarily yeah no exactly and you know so here's a one sentence synopsis just to kind of orient everybody A strange and stunted 20-something-year-old man is desperately looking to reconnect with his closest childhood friend after the death of his mother. Beautiful. Okay. Um, So Mike White stars, like as Daniel said, Mike White stars as Buck. So he is the Buck character. And playing Chuck um, or Charlie. So playing Chuck slash Charlie is the director writer Chris Weitz, who, if you don't know Chris Weitz, I mean, alongside his brother, Paul, um, who actually is also in this film, acting in this film, they have written and directed and produced tons of very popular Hollywood movies. I mean, they did American Pie. They did About a Boy. Mm-hmm. They are out here. So you you will know who they are if you l- look at um, their filmography. But Chris Weitz plays Chuck. And... At the beginning of this movie, you see that Chuck and Buck were friends as children, right? Um, there's 
kind of these like flashback scenes that happen occasionally in the film where it's kind of like them as kids and sort of uh, pictures of them and how they grew up together. And then you cut to the beginning, which is Buck, who is a grown up, you know, in his late 20s. He's sitting in his bedroom while his mother is in the living room watching TV and she's coughing up a lung like she is coughing her brains out. And you're like, okay, what's going on here? And you cut back to Buck in his room and he's just kind of got this like very kid-like bedroom. Like all Mm -hmm. of his like shit everywhere. He's got this like blue orb thing that has these like blow pops stuck in it. (laughs) It's like the kind of thing you would see in an actual can, like an actual candy store display. (laughs) Yes. It's like if you go to the Hello Kitty store or something in the mall, there's like the blow pop thing where you're like, all the pops, all the little um, lollipops are stuck in it or whatever. And he's got one. And he's like eating blow pops like the entire film. (laughs) Not going to lie. I was like, man, I kind of want one of those, but also very strange. Right. And there's a there's a part where he's talking to some kid in the neighborhood and he offers him a a blow pop. And he's like, the kid's like, my mom's this little rot your teeth. And he's like, I eat them all the time. And then he smiles (laughs) and his teeth are just like yellow and (laughs) stained and cracked. And you're like, oh, my God. It's like when, you, when they close up on uh, uh, Looney Tunes characters' teeth and they're like the broken piano <laughs> keys. It's like so gnarly. <laughs> I was like, I did want to blow pop right up until that moment. Yes. But here's the thing. you know. So he's in his room and, and his mom's out there. And, and unfortunately, <laughs> she dies. She dies in, in the living room. And, you know, cut to the funeral. And Buck writes a letter to Chuck, who is out in L.A. He's a music producer. He has a fiancé named Carlin. And he's basically like, my mom died. We're having a funeral. So Chuck shows up at the funeral with Carlin. And they haven't seen each other since childhood. Okay? And it's clear in this scene that they, Chuck and Buck, have... not just had the friendship, but then they had this kind of romantic or sexual relationship as children. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that this is still very meaningful to Buck, but that Chuck has sort of shelved it and has, has moved on from yes. it, evolved past it. Okay. And like I said, Chuck, who now goes by Charlie, I will use those interchangeably. Uh, but his, him and his fiance are sensing that, you know, there's something kind of, you know, obviously a funeral has happened. His childhood friend's mom has passed away. So they're encouraging Buck to come visit them in LA. And eventually Buck takes him up on it and then does so in this very creepy way where Mm -hmm. he shows up to LA. He checks himself into like a motel and he's just got all his bedroom shit with him. Like all of the stuff that was in his childhood bedroom, like the blow pop orb and dolls and record players, toys. toys. It's like kind of, kind of weird. And then instead of being like, Hey Chuck, what's going on? You know, whatever. He just starts stalking him at his job, finds out where he works, and then starts kind of hanging out outside of, like, the music place where Charlie Chuck works. 
And look, Charlie is busy discovering they might be giants. So he doesn't have time for it. Yes. He has. Charlie is responsible for bringing they might be giants to the collective (laughs) consciousness as is revealed in this film. So thank you. We wouldn't know. Thanks, we Chuck. wouldn't know them if it hadn't been for him. <laughs> so if that was interesting. I, I want to do an entire episode. They might be giants is probably my favorite all time band. Whoa. Whoa! When I think about just the music I've been listening to the longest and I've loved yes. the most, they might oh, be yeah. giants is is real high up there. And so I was delighted to remember that there were that their video was in this film and they kind of made that correlation. But yes. I also just think that they're. We should do a compilation maybe on a bonus episode or something of like favorite movies with our favorite musicians and film. Oh, definitely. Um, I was a fan of theirs too when I was a child. I was, I won't even go into it, but I did a performance to Istanbul, not Constantinople for my social studies class in seventh grade. Wow. Yeah, it was kind of a lot. And then, um, yeah, I mean, so I think a lot of people our age have a connection to that band. But it was funny because yeah. there's a part of, the, of of Chuck and Buck where he's like, what, they're, they're in his office and he's playing a video and it's a They Might Be Giants video. And he's just like, oh, I just signed them. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks, Charlie. <laughs> okay, Chuck. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Charlie, Chuck. <laughs> so, so Buck's outside of his office. And he's just kind of like waiting for him and he's trying like he'll do this thing where he'll try to go in and then like right as he's like maybe going to try to uh, see him, he bails. And Mm -hmm. it's very strange. And you're kind of like, well, what's the deal? And then meanwhile, he notices that there's this um, like a local theater company that is across the street from this office. And here's the thing he's he starts kind of like want, wandering around it and then eventually goes in it and then there this is happening for days and weeks by the way where he's just sort of like yeah. outside of his office not saying anything but then eventually buck shows up to this restaurant where charlie and carlin have have just finished dinner and he's like what's up <laughs> you know and they're like what, what are you doing here <laughs> and then he, Buck's like, oh, I moved here to put on a play. Remember when you invited me to come and say hi for a weekend? <laughs> I just leveled that up and I got a room and filled it with all of my toys and stalked Charlie for so long that I actually <laughs> discovered another career. And they're like, oh, you moved to L.A. to put on a play. We had no idea you were in the plays. We had no idea you were in town. And it's just like this weird moment where you're like, this guy is riffing. He doesn't even know what the fuck he's doing here. Like, and and he he thinks he's a playwright because he saw there's a theater company outside of his office. So he's like, I guess I'm going to write a play so I can put it on yeah. in this playhouse. So he does. This is it. part of that stunted nature of him, though. Yes. Where he's like, that's what children do, where they're like, I'm a baseball player now because I got to first base. And you're like, you are seven. This will not last. Yes. So the wildest part is that he walks into this. Ch- it's actually a children's theater, by the way, <laughs> and decides that he's going to actually write a play that he scribbles down on like a legal pad and then he shows up to the theater and there and there's this uh house manager named beverly who is played by this fantastic actress her name is lupe ontiveros she was a 
Mexican-American character actress. I don't know if anybody saw Selena, the the film Selena, mm-hmm. but she played Yolanda Saldivar, who, um, you know, in real life was the woman who murdered Selena, but she played her in the film, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she is, she is the best part of this movie for me. I She's so good. Beautiful. Um, but she's like, this random dude has showed up wanting to put on a play. He handed me the play on a bunch of scrap pieces of paper. And then she's like, well, I can't do this for free. You're going to have to pay me. And he's like, okay. So basically yeah. she helps him put on this random play he's decided to write. So just so he has an excuse to stay in LA to be near oh. Chuck. Very strange. And Chuck is instantly like, oh, hi. Like he, the vibes from Chuck are very, do not come near me. I didn't mean it. I don't actually want to revisit our friendship or yes. have you in my life. Like from yes. jump, he's just like, I should never have gone to this funeral. I should never have reconnected with you. This was a bad idea. Yes. And Carlin's very inviting, but Chuck is very, very arm's length standoffish. Yeah, you you can tell it's that whole dance between like, I need to establish boundaries with this person, but also I feel bad for him. And that's mm-hmm. kind of like, I think, you know, I'll get to that in just a second. But like, here's the thing about this play. So he writes this play and it is essentially the story of their friendship, which is very mm-hmm. weird. And they they end up putting on the fucking play. They cast this guy named Sam, who's this terrible actor, by the way. Awful! Awful actor. But it's because Buck thinks that he looks like Chuck. And mm-hmm. the craziest part about it is that it's actually Chris, the actor playing Sam is is Paul Weitz, who is Chris Weitz's brother. So, of course, they look alike, they're brothers. But anyway, right. Buck is definitely like reenacting, you know, something through this play and through this actor. And listen, the movie goes kind of crazy from here i mean it all hell breaks loose i think in my film too because at certain point buck has become like a full-on peeping tom he's like showing up at chuck's house like peering through his windows while they're having sex and i mean yeah he's a stalker he is a full-on actual stalker full-on there's this one scene where he you know, he's been calling the house. He's doing a peep and Tom thing. But then one day he actually rings the doorbell and shows up. Buck shows up at, at Charlie and Carlin's house. And he's got this like giant poster board collage that he's made for him with like photos of them. And it's just like this moment where these two adults are like, what is happening <laughs> right now? Like, this is this is kind of kooky. Not going to lie. And then Carlin will goes to bed, and then there's this scene where Buck basically comes on to to Charlie, and Charlie kicks him out. Is like, nope, this isn't happening right now, and I don't, you know, this is all too much for me to take, and you know, that's that. But the thing that is very clear, I think, throughout all these scenes is that Buck is just he just cannot accept that Chuck is Charlie, right? Exactly. He wants to have the relationship with him that they had as children, including the sexual mm-hmm. component. You know, Buck is grieving his parents, like, obviously. There's a there's that part of it. Because uh, 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 they're both deceased, apparently, the father, mm-hmm. too. But, like, 
you know, the thing to me that makes this story a little bit more nuanced, though, is that instead of being this like kind of cut and dry stalker story, right? I feel like there are moments where Chuck or Charlie, he feels sorry for Buck, right? And it's that yes. dance, like I said, between like, I need to establish boundaries with this person, but also like, I I do have a connection to him. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to like finesse this, okay? And, I, and I'm not going to give away the ending of the film. That, but that plays out in very interesting ways. And it also, it plays out for the audience, for the viewer, because there's yeah. this one part where towards the end, like as you're saying, in, in the end of these, these scenes, after this happens and, you know, Charlie kind of rejects him, when Buck is talking to Beverly and he's kind of crying and he says there's, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something like, you know, there's, there's no love left for me anymore. And so you do feel really sad for him because you're like, this is someone who either because his parents were ill or because of his own experiences, he's been kept in a very childlike place and he doesn't know how to process adult emotions, even though he is an adult. And so that is also a nice and and unexpected interplay in this. Like you said, it's not just a straight up stalker story. You're really feeling for this character throughout. Yeah. And and it is, it's to me, I feel like that is why I appreciate the writing of Mike White because it, it he'll go to these very dark places, but he also kind of gives you a hint at maybe the whys behind these things. Right. Mm -hmm. Which I think is very smart. And like I said, a lot of people can't handle that intensity. I, I can, I seek it out to be honest. Cause I want to know, like I, you know, I, I, I am fascinated about the emotional complexity behind characters in film and TV. So it's like that thing where I think that's the thing about both of our movies is that these are on display. And I I just, I I think that it's just an interesting narrative device, to be honest. Completely. And I'm, I'm so glad you chose this movie for that, for those reasons and more. Yes. I agree. And um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention there's a Maya Rudolph cameo. <laughs> oh, but pre-SNL baby Maya Rudolph. Looking so cute. Um, obviously, the mentioned They Might Be Giants cameo. <laughs> also, did you, Danielle, did you ever rock with the band That Dog in the 90s? Of course. Yes. yes. There was a, um, it's like a six degrees of That Dog in this film. So like <laughs> the drummer from That Dog Tony Maxwell, he did the music for the movie. Um, he, he was actually in one of the scenes. He has a cameo in the film. But then mm-hmm. him and the soundtrack was done by him and Joey Warnaker. Do you know him? He um, He's played with a mm-hmm. lot of cool bands like R.E.M. and Tom York and Beck. But his sister, Anna, is the lead singer of that dog, which I think is really funny. But then, Beautiful. yeah, I mean, to me, it was that kind of thing where I was like, oh, look at all these, like, you know, sort of like the White's brothers and the that dog uh-huh. family. And, you know, you got Mike White. But it was kind of, yeah, it was kind of cool. That's kind of what happens. It gave me that feeling to, to make all those connections of like, that's what it was. That's what indie cinema used to be like. It was yes. all these people who were very creative getting together and making shit. Yes. It, it definitely felt like friends helping out friends. Right. Yeah. Which I, which I like about, yeah, I like that about indie cinema. And, uh, you know, to me, that was like one of the joys of watching movies like this is to see like, oh, look at all these people from the bands and from other movies. And it's kind of cool. So 
Um, but yeah, th- this movie, I'm, so, I'm, when it comes down to that one friend, I think for this week, like, I think that these two movies, like I said, are very much, um, connected in a lot of ways. And, and again, when it comes back to the notion of this, like intensity of friendships, perhaps some un- unrequited love, um, you know, I can't help but think, wow, both of these, there's you know, a lesbian and a gay man, you know, as, yes. as the center of these films. But it's but it's a it's a fascinating sort of pairing for me. And I'm glad that we kind of were on the same page. Like I said, I didn't expect that this was gonna happen, but it was cool. Yeah. Me I loved it. I truly am so glad that you picked this movie. It rocketed me back through time, not just because of how it looked, but just the feeling of like again, these two characters where you're not sure what's going to happen. You're not sure how this is going to play out. There's something else going on here with each of them. And I love that. I think this is a really good look at and in, in the intensity of friendship. And um, I just loved both of these movies. I loved watching them again. Oh, my gosh. Me too. Well, Danielle, do you want to give the films for our next episode? Of course I do, because... <laughs> The films are Atonement from 2007 and All That Heaven Allows from 1955. Oh my God. Guess the theme. Guess the theme. Well, <sighs> if you want to email us for any reason, please do so at I saw what you did pot at gmail.com. Let me just tell you right now, I don't want to oversell the bonus episodes, but there are times where we do a bonus episode that I'm like, God, I wish this was on the main feed. That's how yeah. much fun we're having. Right. But absolutely. If you have questions or thoughts for any of the bonus, we do use the bonus as a way to, you know, talk back to you guys. Like you guys write us, we answer letters. We, you know, we have a lot of fun. Um, we would love that. So I saw what you did pie at gmail.com. And you can also find us on our social media. We are at I Saw Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And of course, we have I Saw What You Did merch in the Exactly Right shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. And now, as you know, the Exactly Right Network um, has partnered with Amazon Music and Wondery. And you can listen to new episodes one week early on Amazon Music or early and ad-free Plus all of our bonus episodes. This is now the new home for our bonus episodes by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Yes, 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 yes. Well, Danielle, it was a pleasure talking with you again. So glad to be doing this podcast with you. So good. Always, always so thrilled. Cannot wait to watch these movies for next week. And thank you for listening. Thank you. See you next week. been an exactly right production produced and mixed by casey o'brien our theme song is by tom Bryfogel. artwork by garrett ross our executive producers are georgia hartstark karen kilgariff and danielle kramer you can follow us on instagram and twitter at i saw pod and you can email us at i saw what you did pod at gmail listen follow and leave us a review on amazon music apple podcast or wherever you get your podcasts And don't forget, you can listen to new episodes one week early on Amazon Music or early and ad-free plus bonus episodes by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app.
Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.